Well, briefly, for just a few moments this morning, because I know it's viciously hot in here. Uh, I took the I took the uh, communion over to Connie a minute ago, and she whispered in my ear as I walked over. To she, she said, "You got a key sticking," and I thought, "Well, you know what? That's not the only thing sticking in this room right now." <laughs> This is one of the sticky places today. But you know what? We only got a few more weeks, and then we'll have the air conditioning in. And by the time we try to turn the heat on, it won't matter. But next summer, praise God, when we get to July and August, uh, it'll be a lot more comfortable in here. But you know, I'm reminded there are people all around the world, are there not? Who right now, in Thailand, and Vietnam, our brother from yesterday is getting ready to go to Vietnam, and some of these tropical countries, um, they do this all the time. It's nothing for them. We're just so spoiled in America. I'm thankful that you're here, and I'm thankful that we have this building, even if it is hot. But let's, uh, let's turn our attention to the book of Nehemiah, and we'll try to get through this quickly today. It is an important thought, and so I don't want to shortchange it, but let's see what we can find. I want to talk to you today out of Nehemiah chapter 6 on the topic of when it gets personal. When it gets personal. This text that we're looking at today, Nehemiah chapter 6, contains two wonderful statements that we absolutely have to notice right off the bat. One of them is, in verse number one, that it says that I had rebuilt the wall and there were no breaks left in it. And so at this point, in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse number one, the wall's up. The only thing that's left to be done is the doors have not been hung. And so it's done. And then in verse number 15, we see the wonderfully understated progress report saw the wall was finished in 52 days. After all this big buildup, that's all that is said about the wall being completed. So the wall was finished in 52 so Nehemiah has accomplished exactly what he set out to do. Way back in chapter 1, we saw him start off on this journey. Great prayers have been answered that he has been reporting related to this project. And the goal that he set for himself and for his people is now done. Uh, all the way back when he left Shushan the palace, beginning of the story, he's been working on it, planning on it, preparing for it, uh, battling for it, and now it is almost done. At least in verse number 1, it's almost done. In verse number 15, it is done. It is done. Now, when we started this series, we, we said that we were going to title the series Building and Battling and Becoming. Building and Battling and Becoming. Because all of those three themes are seen throughout the book. And we have touched already a little bit on all three of them, haven't we? We've seen them building, we've seen battling, and, and we've touched a little bit on that third word, becoming. But we could make the point now, could we not, that we're done with building. We've come to the conclusion of the project. And, and I, I think probably we are. The building portion is over. But what about those other two themes that are seen throughout the book, the themes of battling and the themes of becoming? Are we done with them? Clearly, we're only in chapter 6, and I don't know if you've noticed, there's a few chapters left of this book. So obviously, there's more to talk about. And I don't think we're quite done with some of these other things. He hasn't accomplished everything he's going to accomplish in the matter of battling. He's not done facing down his enemies who would hinder the work. The battling is not over just because the wall is built and this little part of, a, of his ministry is done. And we haven't even really started touching on him leading his people to becoming the type of people that God wants them to be. So all these things are yet to come. The battling portion we've seen several, uh, quite a bit so far. We saw it in chapter 4, we saw it in chapter 5. And uh, you can go back and look at that if you want. I would suggest to you today that that portion still is existing here in chapter 6. And actually, it's actually coming to a head now. It's coming to a very focused 
type of a battle here in chapter 6. While chapter 4 and chapter 5 talk about enemies from without and enemies from within, it talks about things like weariness and, and, and fear and uh, exhaustion and, and being just overwhelmed with the project, threatening to undermine it all and all those kinds of things. There were some very real enemies, which are mentioned here again, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshef the Arab, who were outsiders who really wanted to destroy the project. Very real uh, threats from them that took place. All that has happened. But now in chapter 6, we're going to see that uh, the end of the battling is not yet. These guys, Sembalat and Tobiah and Geshep the Arab, have come now to pull out all the stops. This is their, their big assault. They're going to get serious now. And they're going to try as hard as they can to undermine this project. Because after all, they look at the city now. They've been trying to stop the wall from going up, and now they look, and everywhere they look, the wall is done. The only thing that's left is there's an opening here and there where they know there's soon to be a gate hanging there and they know they're almost out of time. Matthew Henry in his commentary on these verses said this. He said that because the wall was completed with the exception of the doors being hung on the hinges, it was a now or never situation with the enemies of Nehemiah. They had to strike now or it would be too late. And so here we see in this passage that Brother Jim read to us that they focused their attack no longer on the people on the wall, but now they're going to zero in on one man and one man only. And that's Nehemiah. Now, it's going to get personal. Now, it's going to be personal. And so in our text we see, I would suggest, a personal attack, uh, actually a series of personal attacks, three that we're going to look at, meant to take out the leader, Nehemiah himself. They're no longer aiming at the people on the wall. They're no longer aiming at the city or anything like that. Nehemiah and Nehemiah alone. One commentator said it like this. He said each attack was aimed at Nehemiah personally. This had not been true before. The first two hindrances were to ridicule the Jews for their weaknesses and then to threaten them with violence. We saw that in chapter 4, trying to make them afraid. The internal problems were between the poor and the rich who were exploiting them. We saw that in chapter 5, but not so now. In the final phase of Sandalat and Tobiah's opposition, the attacks were aimed at Nehemiah. It was an old ploy. Sack the quarterback, a coach will tell his defensive line. Shoot at the officers, a commander will sometimes tell his troops. At first, this kind of opposition seems unwise and potentially useless since to attack a leader is to attack the strongest rather than the weakest points of the opposing line. It is the reason opposition usually does not start at this point, but rather with such easy things as ridicule and threats. Later on in the battle, it is different. Leaders get tired too, and the stress of leading a great project takes its toll. At this point, an attack on the leader is frequently effective. Another commentator said it like this. He said this time they were more subtle. Their sole object of attack was Nehemiah himself. By removing him from the scene, or by at least destroying his credibility with the Jews, that a reason they might be able to defeat the work. Each of their three attacks on him was different, but each was designed to take his life or discredit his effectiveness as a leader. And it's not an uncommon strategy. If we had time this morning, and we don't, but if we had time, I'd take you to Second Chronicles chapter 18. You can go there on your own sometime. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, we have the story of Jehoshaphat and Ahab. Jehoshaphat was the good king of Judah, and Ahab was the ridiculously wicked king of Israel. And for some reason known only to God, Jehoshaphat decided to have an alliance with Ahab. Uh, certainly not his, one of his better moments. But uh, in, in, in this alliance that he formed with Ahab, uh, they decided to go to battle against Syria. And Ahab, this wicked king, said to Jehoshaphat, this good king, who apparently was having some sort of a brain aneurysm at the time, Ahab said to him, I'm not going to dress up like the king. I'm going to disguise myself. You dress up like the king, and we'll go into battle. And Jehoshaphat said, sure, that's fine. 
And so they went into battle, and the Syrians said, fight not against large or small, but fight only against the king of Israel. They saw only one king, so every single weapon was aimed at Jehoshaphat until he screamed out in terror and they realized it wasn't him. That was their strategy, was it not? Take out the king! And if we take out the king, we take out the whole army. Interestingly, one of the more wonderful stories of God's providence and sovereignty is seen in that passage, because that's the passage where Ahab thought he could avoid God's judgment on his life, and the Bible just says that an archer drew a bow at a random, drew an arrow at random and shot at it. It hit Ahab, who was hiding and thinking no one knew where he was, hit him at random and killed him. And it's seen also, the whole principle that I'm trying to point out to you is seen even in that, because the minute Ahab was dead, the minute the king was gone, the battle was over. The battle was over. And so three different personal attacks we see here uh, against Nehemiah himself. Let me just mention them, and then we'll be done. The first one is the attack of trickery. Trickery, and it's in the first four verses uh, that we read here this morning. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And, and if you think about what happened there, it seems pretty innocuous, doesn't it? They sent him some letters, and they said, Hey, Nehemiah, let, let's, let's go and meet someplace. Let's, let's, let's sit down and talk. You could almost imagine that Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, who have been openly opposed to this project from the beginning, are now, they almost, they, they seem to be admitting defeat here, don't they? And they seem to be conciliatory in their, in their behavior. It's almost like they're saying, okay, Nehemiah, you've won. Obviously the wall is up, and, and all of our best efforts to stop your, your, uh, your attempts have failed. And so let's, let's just, let's let bygones be bygones. And let's just gather over here, let's just meet. And let's just talk. We're all going to be governors here together now. And so let's just talk about how we're going to work together on these things. And, and you look at that and at first glance, it seems like, well, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Nothing wrong with that. Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says, isn't dialogue good? Isn't it always better to talk than to fight, to keep the lines of communication open? Isn't a refusal to talk to our opponents always unnecessarily and unreasonably belligerent? Isn't there a time to let bygones be bygones and to bury the hatchet? What possible reason can there be for refusing to talk once the election is over or the job is done? But that was just the problem. The job was not done. It was almost done. The walls were complete to their full height and the gates remained, but the gates remained. And until they were completed, the entire great project was in jeopardy. And Nehemiah knew this, and for that reason, at least that was one reason, he declined the invitation. You see, Nehemiah smelled a rat. Yeah, it sounded like nothing serious. They just wanted to sit and talk. But he, he, knew, he knew something was wrong. He knew this was not an innocent request. He saw right through it, and we know that, because in verse number 2 he says, um, they thought to do me harm. He knew that their motives were not to just sit down and talk. He knew that they wanted to harm him. Now, I don't know, did he have secret intelligence? I don't know. Or did he just think to himself, these guys have never wanted anything good uh, for this project. They have been our enemies from the beginning, and I'm sure they haven't changed one little bit. Maybe he was thinking just like uh, in Jeremiah chapter 13, when the Bible says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots, then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. Maybe he thought to himself, these people are wicked, and they're still wicked, and I don't trust them. Maybe that's what he was thinking. I told you the story of the frog and scorpion, haven't I? I love the story of the frog and the scorpion. You remember the story? frog is... Uh, Comes, comes up to a, uh, a river, and as he walks up to the river, he sees a scorpion sitting there alongside the river. And the scorpion looks at him and says, hey, you can swim, can't you? And the frog says, of course I can swim, I'm a frog. And he says, I need a ride to the other side. And the frog says to the scorpion, oh, no. 
I don't think so. You get on my back and you'll sting me. I'm in the water and uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a fool. And the scorpion says, no, why would I do that? Come on, I want to get to the other side. If I sting you in the middle of the water, obviously we're both going to the bottom of the water. That would just be stupid of me to do that. And the frog says, all right, fine. Hop on. Across the river they go halfway out the scorpion's finger. And as the frog's eyes are glazing over, he looks at the scorpion and he says, why? Why did you do that? We're both going to die now. And the scorpion says, I'm a scorpion. You know, it's what scorpions do. And perhaps Nehemiah looked at Sam Bell and Tobiah and said, you guys are talking peace, but I know you don't mean peace. I know what you are. I know that you mean me harm. Well, how did he defeat this first personal attack, this attack of trickery, where they were just trying to trick him into coming down from the wall? I would suggest the answers in verse number three. He said, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? He replied, this work is too important. I can't stop. I can't be bothered. I can't get distracted to come swap stories with you. I cannot come down. They repeated the message four times. He repeated his response four different times. I would suggest that the basic personal attack that they launched against him right here was to just simply try and distract him and pull his attention off the task at hand so that he would come down off of the wall. I have no idea what they were going to do with him if they had got him to come where he, where they were asking him to go. That place that they suggested they meet was 25 miles away approximately. It was a good day's journey away. He thought they meant him harm. Probably they did. But certainly, whether they meant to harm him or not, they knew that if they could get Nehemiah to lose focus on the task, it would certainly have hindered the project. And that word focus is exactly how I would suggest he defeated it. He defeated it by keeping his mind on what he had to do. I am doing a great work. I cannot be distracted. I am doing a great work. And you know what? We have the same tool available to us whenever the enemy would try to trick us into coming down off the wall and get our attention off the work of God and the service of God and living for the Lord Jesus Christ. I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Boys and commenting on this passage and on that one sentence said this. He said, what magnificent, single-minded concentration, focus. That's what Nehemiah had. By keeping his eyes focused on the job at hand, he was able to avoid falling into the trickery of his enemies. And you know, we have that same, that same exact uh, weapon in our arsenal. Paul said it like this to the Philippians. He said, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, there's the goal. I'm keeping my eye on it. I'm pressing toward it no matter what distractions come my way. We need to learn that as a church. We need to never take our eyes off the goal. We, never need to be, we, we, we must never allow ourselves to be tricked into forgetting what we're here for. You know what we're here for? We have a mission. It's clearly defined in the Bible. It's defined in Matthew chapter 28, where we read that uh, you're to go, that go you therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Ghost, uh, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and law with you always. We have that in Mark chapter 16, verse number 15. Go you there, go you in all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. We have it in Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. Uh, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, 
Sumerian under the uttermost parts of the earth. What's our mission as a church is to win people, baptize people, disciple people, and teach people. And when we're tricked into coming down off the wall and doing anything else, we've lost our focus. We have to stay focused on that. That's why I think vacation Bible school is so important. It's about winning people, discipling people, baptizing people, and teaching people. It's part of our focus. But not just as a church. We need to learn it as individuals, too. You know, the, the devil... Our enemy, your enemy, wants to divert your gaze from the Savior every chance he can. And when he succeeds, you're walking Christ's office. Keep your focus on Jesus. No matter what diversions come your way, don't be tricked. Don't be tricked. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. You see, that's what Nehemiah did. He fixed his eyes on his task. I am doing great work. I cannot come down. I cannot come down. So that was the first attack, the attack of trickery. The second is in verses 5 through 9, the attack of terror. Terror. When they saw that no matter how many times they sent this nice, sweet letter to Nehemiah, he replied exactly the same way, and they were getting nowhere. They decided to uh, ramp it up a little bit, and they decided to try something a little bit more, uh, I don't know, serious. We'll see here that the fifth time they sent the letter, and this time the letter came and it was open. And this time the letter had contained within it a very veiled, or maybe not so veiled, threat. One source that I came across in my study said this about that open letter. It's interesting, the Bible says the letter was open. One source said this. It said it was a sign of contempt. It was a sign of disrespect. For a letter that had been properly sent to an official of Nehemiah's rank would have been sealed in an official manner. So it's interesting that in this attack, it included not only the threat in the letter, but also the outward sign of contempt. It was almost like they were just taking the gloves off now. It was almost like they were saying, okay, Nehemiah, we tried to be nice, but now we're going we're to try something else here. Four times you refused our invitation. Now, we're going to get serious. That's one possibility. They were showing contempt for his leadership. Another commentator has a different interpretation, saying that that open letter was a way of saying, you know what, look here, this letter's open. Lots of people have read this letter. Everybody knows what's in here, Nehemiah. This is common knowledge, this that is taking place here. Boy, that's a tactic the enemy uses all the time. How many times do we hear somebody when they want to they want to cause trouble or they want to have a problem? Say, everybody knows about this, everybody knows this is true. You, you've heard that kind of thing. And and parents of kids certainly know their kids love that one. Well, all the kids are doing it. Everybody else is doing it. It's not true, of course. But that's basically what they were saying, is it not? By sending this open letter. So the fact that it was open was one of the problems that would have struck fear into, into the heart, or could have struck fear into the heart of Nehemiah, but the contents of it certainly would have. The contents are seen in verse number 6. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, referring to Artaxerxes, who had given Nehemiah the privilege to come back. So come, therefore, let us consult together. Nehemiah, the king, is going to find out that you're trying to usurp his throne. Nehemiah, we're going to tell him, maybe you want to think your, rethink your position. 
come sit down and talk with us. And so when simple distraction didn't get him off the wall, he resorted to threats. And they weren't idle threats. They were real threats. If this had gotten back to the king, and if the king had believed this, the end of Nehemiah's head, this would not have been a good thing. There were things over which Nehemiah could reasonably expect the fear actually be in terror. And so we saw that they tried the personal attack of trickery. They tried to trick him into coming down. When that didn't work, they tried to terrify him into coming down. And so how did he defeat this particular personal attack against him, the attack of terror? Well, he did it with his old friend, the tool that he uses so often. We see it in verse number 9, prayer. Look at verse number 9, the last part. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. Now, Christian, I need to remind you of something. And Phil talked about this a little bit in his Sunday school class this morning, which I sat in on. But we need to remember something here. No matter how terrifying the enemies of God may appear, no matter how much they may threaten and pop up and, 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 and appear like they're going to win and take us down, no matter how ominous world events may seem to us when we read them on, uh, on our newspaper or see them on CNN or something like that, no matter what, uh, the world would try to tell us that the Christians are losing the fact that this is not true. We've already won. And that's the most important thing that we can think about here. Remember it, write it down, take it to the bank, uh, remember it forever that the battle is already won. John chapter 16 and verse 33, And these things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be it good cheer, I will overcome the world. Phil used that in his Sunday school this morning too. Romans chapter 8, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all those things. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. 1 John chapter 5, verse number 4, Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. 1 John 4, 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We win. That's the simple, simplest way to say it. We win. The battle is already won. But the devil doesn't want you to believe that. The devil didn't want Nehemiah to believe that. Sanballat and Tobias and Geshem didn't want him to believe that. And there's going to be times when we will experience this same personal attack, the attack of fear, and we have the same weapon. Pray. Pray. Matthew Henry said, when in our Christian work and warfare we are entering upon any particular services or conflicts, this is a good prayer for us to put up. I have such a duty to do, such a temptation to grapple with. Now therefore, O oh God, strengthen my hand. Strengthen my hands. Number three. And finally, the attack of treachery. So they tried to trick him off the wall. They tried to terrify him off the wall. Now, treachery raises its head. Verses 10 through 14. And I'm just going to read you an explanation from a source that I think explains this better than I could. Just what happened here in these verses. This man says, persisting in their evil planning, Nehemiah's enemies then tried to destroy his credibility by luring him into the temple. They hired Shemaiah, a man on the inside, to propose a solution to Nehemiah. Claiming to be a prophet, he purposely locked himself in his house, supposedly, supposedly from some debility or ritual defilement, and sent word for Nehemiah to visit him. Perhaps Shemaiah devised an urgent situation that would arouse Nehemiah's curiosity. Now, Shemaiah must have been a man Nehemiah trusted, for it would have been illogical for him to meet secretly with someone he did not trust. When, Shemaiah, when Nehemiah arrived, Shemaiah suggested they meet in the temple behind closed doors. He pretended to be protecting Nehemiah from would-be nighttime assassins. 
Nehemiah discerned two flaws in Shemaiah's so-called prophecy. First, God would hardly ask Nehemiah to run when the project from the walls was nearing completion. Second, no true prophet would ask someone to violate God's law. Only priests were allowed in the sanctuary according to Numbers chapter 3 and Numbers chapter 18. If Nehemiah, not being a priest, entered the temple, he would have desecrated it and brought himself under God's judgment. He would not disobey God to try to gain safety from his enemies. So Nehemiah was convinced that Shemaiah was a false prophet employed by Tobiah and Sambalat to trick him. If the governor had entered the temple and lived, his people would know he disregarded God's commands. Once again, Nehemiah prayed, this time that God would remember his enemies and judge them for their evil scheming. In this imprecation, he also included the prophetess Noadiah, who is mentioned only here, who with other false prophets was seeking to intimidate him. End quote. And so Nehemiah saw through this treacherous plot. It made no sense for him to flee. Isn't that what he's saying in verse number 11? He says, should such a man as I flee? And I don't believe that's arrogance there. Sometimes we read that and we think he was being arrogant. Me? A man like me? No, I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I don't think it was arrogance. I think what he was saying was if the leaders are unwilling to stand, who will? If I don't stay on the wall, who's going to stay on the wall? And I suggest also he recognized the incongruities in this prophet, quote-unquote, his prophet's suggestion. God obviously had not sent him. And we see that in verse number 12. He said, I perceived God had not sent him at all. And he even saw through their, their plot to their ultimate motives, which is seen in verse number 13. It says here that uh, I know that they were hired for this reason, that I should be afraid, that I should act that way in sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. He knew his credibility as a man of God would be damaged, and he knew that his credibility as a leader would be compromised, and he knew that the project would be hindered. So how did he defend himself against this last attack? Certainly one of the ways was to pray again. We see that in verse number 14, don't we? My God, remember to buy and about, send out according to these their works. And the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. Pray down judgment upon him again. Not for the first time in this book did he pray an imprecatory prayer. So he prayed. But there's a much more basic method of defense that he used and the one that I think applies to us today, and that's this. Knowledge. Discernment. I like verse 12. He said, I perceive that God had not sent him at all. I perceive God had not sent him. How will he know that? How could he make a statement like that? I perceive that God had not sent him. The reason he could say that is because Nehemiah knew God. Nehemiah knew God's word. Nehemiah knew God's will for his life. Nehemiah knew what job he was supposed to be doing. He was not easily taken in by somebody just because they stood up and said, Thus saith the Lord. He knew what he was supposed to be doing and what God wanted him to do. Two applications that would make from this and then I will be done. One of them, and maybe this particular application applies to all three of these threats, I don't know. But one application is this, as Christian, no matter what counts, we need to stand. We need to stand. No matter what kind of personal attacks. I love the story of the mythical 300 at Thermopylae. Don't you love that story? 300 soldiers who stood in supposedly against a million. It's mythical, I'm sure. But nonetheless, it's a wonderful bit of picture of fortitude. And it's a fortitude that ought to mark us no matter what comes. Too many of us as Christians just give up. Too many of us, if, if, if these little attacks would have come against us, we would have just withered and died. Nehemiah stood. He said, should such a man as I flee, I have to stand. As believers in the risen Savior, 
the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have to stand no matter what. I wish we had time, but we don't. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13 talks about the armor of God that we all have. Put on the whole armor of God. And the interesting part is there's no provision there for retreat. There's nothing for the back. It's only, you're only outfitted to move forward. You turn around and flee. You're helpless. We need to stand. Winston Churchill once time, one time gave a speech. He gave a speech at Harrow School. It was near the end of World War II. And it's just a portion of that speech, just a couple of sentences from that speech. He said, surely from this period of ten months, and he's speaking back on World War II now, surely from this period of ten months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. We stood all alone a year ago, and to many countries it seemed our account was closed. We were finished. All this tradition of ours, our songs, our school history, this part of the history of this country were gone and finished and liquidated. But very different is the mood today. Britain and other nations thought had drawn a sponge across her slate, but instead our country stood in the gap. There was no flinching. There was no thought of giving in. And by what seemed almost a miracle to those outside these islands, though we ourselves never doubted it, we now find ourselves in a position where I say that we can be sure that we have only to persevere to conquer. Christians must stand. Having done all, stand. But the second application. The second application. If we're going to have the ability to spot the enemy as Nehemiah did here, and if this one all be done, we simply have to know our Bibles, don't we? I perceived, I perceived that God had not sent him. How could he do that? It's because he knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. And when a word was uttered which contradicted what he knew to be true from the word of God, he could reject it out of hand as false. You know, Christians, you are going to be bombarded in your life with false teaching and false prophets. If from no other source, the TV is enough to bombard you with false teaching. And I'm not just talking about TV preachers. I'm talking about how the television preaches to you the doctrines of this world 24 hours a day and we sit there with our eyes glazed on it and are indoctrinated by it. False teaching. False doctrine. I think this is one of the reasons things clearly taught as sin in the Bible are now believed to be perfectly acceptable in the Church of Jesus Christ in America because we listen to the false teachers of this world. God help us. But I also mean to exclude the fact that there are some preachers who stand up and utter false teaching. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that either. Many stand and proclaim and say, Thus saith the Lord, whom God hath not sent. That's very true. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. So what's the solution? Same solution as when they came to Peter. Same solution as when these false prophets came, I mean, came to Nehemiah. Same solution. Perceive that God has not sent them. And the way you do that is knowing your Bible. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. How many of you have done that? 61 days. Anybody? Anybody done the 61 days? God, we still got 61 days left in the air. We need to do it. Read your Bible. There's nothing more important that we can do as believers than to read our Bibles. It will keep you from the treachery of the enemy. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures. We're going to fall on our face if we don't know what's in the Bible. It will give you discernment to tell when a prophet is true or not. 
Acts chapter 17 and verse number 11 said these were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Paul, you sound great up there in the pulpit. I love your preaching, but you know what? I'm going to go check you out when I get home. How do you guys know I'm not a stand up? How do you know I'm not a divide? How do you know I'm not Geshe the air? How do you know I'm not a false prophet standing up here teaching you all kinds of junk? There's only one way you can know that. This is the only way. And the only thing that gave Nehemiah discernment was he knew the Word of God. Christians, we must read our Bibles. Turn the television off. Read your Bibles. Vital. 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 Well, three personal attacks were mounted against Nehemiah here. Three personal attacks were fended off. The attack of trickery was defeated by keeping focused on the goal. The attack of terror was defeated by prayer. And the attack of treachery was defeated by knowledge and discernment. And you know what happened? The wall was built. Verse 15 tells me. You know what else happened? Even the enemies, they looked at it and they said, you know what? It's an amazing thing. We can't help it. We have to admit. Verse number 16, we have to admit. Obviously God is doing something. Obviously. God is doing something. When personal attacks from the enemy come to us, and they will, might be against the leadership of this church, elders, deacons, those who earn positions of leadership, might be against the leadership in the home, husbands, fathers. It might be just against you personally. All of us are a leader of our own personal walk with the Lord. We all have the responsibility to stand before Him individually. Learn from Nehemiah. When the personal attacks come, stay on the wall. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord. This has been a this has been a somewhat difficult passage because I know, Lord, a lot of this applies to me. Maybe today I'm preaching to myself more than anybody else in the room. I don't know. I just pray, Lord, that you would just help us to think about these things and teach us and protect us and guide us. Lord, when the personal attacks of trickery come, help us to stay focused on that which we should be doing. When the enemy would terrorize us and cause us to fear and come down off of the wall, help us, Lord God, to pray. And Lord, when even when we're beset with treachery, when we're, when we're lied to, when people try to, uh, to teach us things that are false and untrue and cause us in those ways, those treacherous ways, oh Lord God, give us discernment. May we know our Bibles and be able to know what's, what is right, what is wrong, what is true. And may we always stay true to you. Lord, I don't know what needs are in this room here today. And I know that people are tired and hot and it's time to go home. But I do pray as we sing just a verse or two, that Lord, if there is a decision that needs to be made, whether people come forward or do it in the pews, I pray decisions will be made that we might follow you. And I'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.